Welcome to Managing Marketing and today I have the opportunity to sit down with Paul Fisher who's Managing Director of 30 Acres, uh, which is what an e-commerce business. But anyway, welcome Paul. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. What is 30 Acres? Because it sounds like a farm to me. Well, it's funny. I get that question quite a lot and there is a bit of a backstory, but I won't bore your listeners with the backstory just yet. But um... No, no, please bore me. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I guess, first of all, what are we? We're, I guess, uh, best described as an integrated commerce agency. So we help brands do their thing using internet technology and digital technology. So be they an e-commerce store or a business looking to execute omni-channel strategies, that's kind of us. Mm-hmm. So half the business um, is uh, uh, technologists, software developers and so on. The other half are marketers, social media people, content creators, strategists, um, SEO people, um, programmatic media people, email marketers and so on. So that's kind of the, I guess, the team. And um, Where's the 30 acres so, coming? Yeah, moving back to the, to the answer that everyone wants. So many, many, many years ago, I was working for a, um, a very big uh, a very big retailer and uh, I was kind of living the, the corporate dream. I'd kind of got to the top of the food chain and uh, I was kind of banging my head on the ceiling a little Climbed bit. Climbed the greasy pole and you'd hit the glass ceiling, yeah? Something like that, yeah. And uh, I kind of got to the point where I was wondering whether I could get any further and was a bit frustrated with, the, I guess, the pace of change, trying to sort of drive this behemoth forward with, um, I guess, e-commerce tactics when they were not quite ready for it. So. Um, in a moment of frustration, I was sitting there with my marketing manager and another sort of senior manager of the team, and we were wondering what life would be like after uh, work at this particular business. And um, we started throwing around, this is how long ago it was, we started throwing around possible names for our new consulting business, such as um, eBiz Solutions and eBiz This and uh, all these terrible names. And then uh, the following day, my marketing manager, who was an English chap, came back to me and said, I've got it, I've got it. It's 30 acres. And I said, what the hell has that got to do with anything? And he said, well, you know, I just like the way it rolls off, off my tongue. And I said, hmm, 30 acres, it sounds kind of nice. And I started picturing somewhere like Byron Bay, green fields, sea change, tree change, whatever. Anyway, it kind of stuck in my head as a bit of a symbol of doing things differently, busting out of the corporate world, not being sort of constrained by, uh, I guess, limited, limited ways of doing things. And so for me, it became uh, a symbol of possibility, green fields, opportunity, and uh, when the time came for me to uh, start my um, consultancy business, uh, that was the name that sort of floated to the surface. Yeah, so, that that yeah. is not a boring story at all, because I actually like the, the metaphor of the green field, you know, 30 mm. acre green field on which you could turn it into anything that you want. And the great thing is it, it kind of means different things for different people. So when we meet new clients for the first time, they always have this idea that we're um, working from a farmhouse on 30 acres somewhere up near Byron Bay, which is not too far from the truth, but it does mean different things to different people, and that's kind of part of the beauty of it. Mm. But it is based on uh, uh, technology and commerce, and a lot of people call that e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, but what does e-commerce actually mean? Because I think it's sort of become a nebulous term, hasn't it? It has, because when you think about e-commerce, the e being electronic uh, commerce being buying goods and services, I guess. Uh, I mean, I guess it's supposed to represent people buying 
goods or services via internet technology. But as internet technology starts to permeate the physical retail world, uh, even the world of watches, wearables and so on, the lines are becoming extremely blurred. And, uh, you know, just as digital marketing is now just marketing, it's much the same thing, um, which is why we call ourselves a commerce agency, because we don't really discriminate between um, helping businesses uh, do their thing online or offline because it's about putting the customer at the centre, using these technologies to, I guess, have one view of, of the world. So when did you first become aware, like personally aware, of the ability to transact online? Uh, I would say it was probably in about the year 2000, um, if not a little bit before. More in terms of, uh, I guess, looking at emerging internet technology and then... Um, uh, I had a, a couple of jobs where we were starting to sort of, I guess, crystallise ideas as to how we might sell um, products online. And, um, you know, for me, um, I then actually saw a, um, a job advertised and I was very interested in the internet stuff. And, uh, um, and the job basically said, we want someone who has an interest in travel and the internet. I thought, wow, that sounds like the perfect bloody job. That doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> And, it's a good uh, combination, isn't it? Yeah, and, uh, and I guess selling travel via the internet is probably, uh, you know, it's, it's a very natural fit because you can sort of uh, tell a story, transact online, there's no physical picking, packing, warehousing, shipping and so on. Um, so yeah, I, I got involved in e-commerce pretty early um, and specifically in the travel ecosystem for quite some time. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm sure at the time, it would almost have been, wow, that's amazing. And yet now, could you imagine not actually booking or planning or doing travel online? I mean, it's become so ubiquitous that you Absolutely. wouldn't think of doing it any other way. Absolutely. And I think uh, back then, the challenges were massive. How to sort of uh, give consumers one experience, aggregating lots of information from lots of hotels, lots of airlines, and all of these, uh, I guess, service operators had very disparate systems, very archaic legacy systems. So the dream of trying to sort of sell something on one screen was actually, um, at that point, it was a dream. It just seemed like it was insurmountable. But as the technology caught up, it became uh, very real and very possible. Mm. So it was interesting for me because it was around that time, around you know, early 2000s, um, it was software. It was amazing how suddenly software went from something you would go into a bricks and mortar store and buy a CD-ROM and then there was suddenly you could buy the update and they'd still deliver it to you. That's right. Through That's post. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then it was, oh, no, we don't have CD-ROMs anymore. You just actually pay for it and it gets downloaded onto your computer. And now this all happens in the background and it just gets deducted from your credit card yeah. without even actually having a transaction. I think that's the story of beautiful commerce is reducing all the friction points and whether you're selling software, selling travel, selling shoes, couches, whatever, it's about trying to reduce friction points and make it very convenient and very easy. And that's the, I guess, the dream of perfect commerce, really. Mm. How do we make it possible, convenient to have a beautiful experience and delight customers by removing those, those points of friction? But it's, um, again, you know, we're talking about in a lot of the cases, we're talking about services and, th and, and uh, things that can be actually transacted without delivering a product. And yet a lot of people talk about e-commerce 
in relation to retailing products, don't they? Yeah. I mean, we have quite a lot of consumer packaged goods companies that talk about setting up e-commerce where they have to deliver product to the consumer rather than going through the retailer. That's right. I think those particular companies have got quite a challenge to, uh, I guess, re-engineer the way they're, they're constructed to be able to achieve that. Because when you think about, uh, I guess, packaged products that might sell in a supermarket or a convenience store or something like that, um, those products are usually sold um, by the pallet load at volume uh, and it's a very different experience to sell individual products with uh, high volume via, I guess, normal kind of logistics services. And also that most of those entities, if you think about the corporate structure, they have uh, distribution systems, distribution managers, regional sales managers, and all of the all of that infrastructure that's about sort of selling into, I guess, the distribution networks. They're not really geared up to, um, I guess, streamline their their services for e-commerce. Some of them might, they might be moving that way. Uh, in fact, I think there are quite a few who are looking to acquire businesses that are set up that way. I mean, there's a very, very famous story of, uh, have you heard of uh, Dollar Shave Club in yes, the US? Yes, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Which uh, became a very successful company selling, I guess, shaving kits, razors, and so and on. And then got bought. <laughs> by who else? Unilever. Yeah, so, their biggest competitor. Exactly. So I think that those companies are finding different ways to access these emerging markets? I think sometimes the main driver is not to have a sales channel, but to have a more intimate connection to their customer. Because one of the things is that e-commerce does, you know, set up properly, e-commerce allows you to really get to know your customer, you know, to give them options, to learn more about the way they choose products and things like that. And that's something that a lot of consumer packaged goods companies miss out on because all of the interaction happens through a third party, which is the retailer. It's interesting, isn't it? If you look back, say, 20 years and we said that uh, we can become more intimate with a customer via the internet than in a physical store, it seems kind of um, the wrong way around, if you like, but it is actually true now what we can learn about a customer, not, not just from a customer's behavior on your own site, but the way they move around the internet and the way we put together that sort of data picture of what their interests are, um, um, how frequently they purchase, um, what products they like and dislike, how frequently that they like to purchase and so on. Yeah, so, what they browse, what they search. Exactly, and it's and it's not just via a website. Being able to do that across devices is uh, is now very much possible. Yeah, the, actually understanding the identity yep. of a person rather than just a sort of collective demographic. Absolutely, from from the point of say storytelling or trying to sort of create some sort of interest or connection, right through to purchase and beyond. And uh, it's interesting that. Now, e-commerce brands are becoming very, very good at, uh, I guess, storytelling online, much more so than, say, um, the old world physical retailers. Being able to tell a story online, whether it's via social media or via their own websites, through influencers, etc., there are some very, very sophisticated storytellers who are pure play internet companies. Mm. It's, um, it's interesting because very few of those consumer packaged goods companies actually get their e-commerce site to get any sort of volume or scale. Mm. Because I think most of them go against exactly what you said before, which is uh, uh, internet 
commerce is about reducing friction points. And in actual fact, if you own or offer a range of products, it's much easier for someone to go to a retailer that offers all of the competitors' products than just going to yours and someone else's and someone else's, which then makes the focus on retailers. Retailers in Australia especially have not been as good as other countries like the US or China in actually embracing uh, online commerce, have they? No, it's, it's true. I they've think, been slow. Yeah, they've, they've definitely been slow. And it seems like it's taken, uh, I guess, the elephant in the room being Amazon to really to, to make a start in Australia to kind of wake them up, really. Uh, you know, Australia has probably got, um, I think, you know, maybe about 7% um, versus, say, 12% in terms of, uh, I guess, internet retailing versus physical retailing. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing that happened was when Amazon started here, uh, a lot of the retailers kind of reacted and said, oh, nothing's really going to happen. Uh, it'll just lift the category. And everyone said, no, it's not. And it turns out that, um, you know, the incoming tide that is Amazon did actually lift all the boats because the, the da data that's now there indicates that internet traffic um, since Amazon is actually up 9% in Australia. It was actually flat before that. So... The, I guess the, you know, the arrival of Amazon has had a, um, it's been a bit of a shot in the arm for internet activity in Australia. Mm. So how that actually bears out when it comes to, I guess, the, the big guys, whether it's JB Hi-Fi, Kogan, um, DJs, uh, and so on, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I, I would imagine there'll be a few retailers like Booktopia, mm. for example. Certainly Kogan, you would, you would think would be a bit nervous because there's a lot of kind of crossover with electronic products and so on. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. It is quite a behemoth. But even you know, at the earliest days of mm -hmm. Amazon, one of the things that they did use the platform for was really testing who you are and what your tastes and interests yep. are, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I guess Amazon was one of the first entities to really sort of test some uh, advanced um, I guess artificial intelligence, for want of a better term, um, machine learning, and really yeah, let's call to, it machine learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, machine learning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and really starting to sort of predict what I might like, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, they became the benchmark for how to, uh, I guess, how to sort of upsell really on, online. I remember, uh, you know, buying books in the early days of Amazon that would offer me books that I already had. And then I worked out there was actually a point that you could click and say, oh, I actually own those. And it, it helped refine that algorithm, the machine learning algorithm, yeah. to then be much sharper in what it offered me. And right. it, it was also a good example of the quid pro quo that if you're willing to give up some information about yourself, it actually meant that you got a much better experience because yeah. it stopped offering these either things that I already had. But it did surprise me that, you know, occasionally I'd go off and buy a book for a child. Yeah. And then suddenly it would think, oh, you're in, you know, you've got children and it offered me all these children's books. No, it was a one off present. Where can I actually <laughs> input that piece of data yeah. so you Where stop offering the algorithm? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a one off. That's it. That's an interesting point actually. I wonder whether uh whether some of these retailers will ever give you access to your own data to that level of, uh, of knowledge. So obviously there's a, there's a lot of information that Amazon would have about you. Would they ever open that up? I mean, you think about um, uh, you know, 
Facebook has had a lot of flack for collecting so much data, selling it to advertisers and so on. Um, there's a push for giving people access to their own data, being able to delete it. Would a retailer like Amazon ever give you access to what it thinks about you and allow you to tweak that? I wonder. Mm. Well, it'd certainly um, be interesting reading. Mm. And yes. uh, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, there's already people talking about uh, blockchain, which I read recently mm-hmm. was voted the uh, most overused term in marketing. <laughs> but uh, there was someone uh, extrapolating the idea that eventually all of that data could be put onto blockchain so that you as the individual could then control and release the parts about you that you're willing to uh, have known. That's I, I thought one. it could be a bit too late. It could be the horse has already bolted because yeah. to scan all of the internet and find all of the databases that have all the bits of information about me that they've collected over the years. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's inter- interesting because a lot of that information now is housed in um, anonymously, of course, mm. in, uh, in in third-party data warehouses that are now used by, say, um, programmatic media engines. And so basically, you never actually, they don't know who you are, but they know with some fairly good probability that it is you, and this is what you like because of your inf- information and travels around the internet. And that information is obviously uh, not just behavioural information, it's um, credit card data, it's data from all sorts of different sources that's aggregated and then put together with, um, I guess, some advertising um, machinery to predict what you like and what you don't like. So the information is there, it is aggregated, uh, but it's uh, de-anonymized, I guess, (laughs) in theory. One of the big things that's uh, impacted transacting, especially transacting online, is uh, all of the rise of the new uh, ways of payment. You know, and and certainly I think um, Alipay and WeChat Pay, the Chinese have been particularly good at almost democratising electronic payments, uh, probably because it's a great way of getting rid of cash out of an economy. Absolutely. But it's interesting how a lot of the banks and financial institutions outside of China are really playing catch up, aren't they? I think they've been caught fairly flat-footed in that regard. And there are a lot of kind of very exciting, I guess you'd call them fintech players, uh, who are moving into uh, the bank's territory. And whether we're we're talking about, uh, you know, I guess the PayPal's of the world um, or even the Afterpay's of the world who are managing to sort of wedge themselves in between, uh, I guess, the the customer and the transaction. And really not just... uh, um, creating new ways of payment but trapping that data which they can then sell on to uh, data warehouses to tell a bit more about what you do. I know um, when we go to China um, if you've got a WeChat connected account mm-hmm. you actually don't need cash anymore even food vendors yep. have QR codes and you just scan that and the payment's already made. I mean it makes That's it to your point about reducing friction, friction. It makes it unbelievably easy yep. to transact. Absolutely. Another example, I guess, in the e-commerce world, there are probably quite a few different examples, but uh, uh, Shopify, which is, I guess, mm-hmm. known as a, um, I guess, a, an e-commerce juggernaut of sorts. I think they have 700,000 stores on, on the Shopify platform worldwide, and they have a, um, a product called uh, Shopify Pay, Shopify Payments, and it's effectively their own kind of payment gateway. And... Uh, when a merchant sets up with Shopify rather than their own payment gateway, um, 
if you've been to another Shopify site anywhere, it knows that you've been to another Shopify site, so it knows what your details are. And so basically you don't have to keep entering your details every time you go and go to a different merchant. Mm-hmm. And the evidence so far indicates that conversion rates are 40% better for people who use Shopify payments because of that frictionless process. Mm. So there's certainly a benefit there. Um, I mean, there are pros and cons for merchants as well, but uh, it's all about reducing the friction. So what do you see are the big opportunities for uh, companies mm-hmm. that uh, want to in reduce the friction of transacting with their customers? Mm. I mean, what's the starting point in all mm. this? Well, I guess the starting point is really, uh, it's very different if you are an existing e-commerce player versus uh, um, a, a new business. But uh, an existing e-commerce player, uh, it's really understanding your customer and what they want and trying to make things easy for them. But Sometimes making things easy for someone, such as um, uh, keeping a membership profile, etc., just to smooth the, the, tran- the transaction process, can be quite daunting because people don't like to give over information. They don't like you to keep their credit card details and so on. But I must say, look, you know, if I uh, purchase something on Amazon or Apple, I like the frictionless process that they already have my details. I just go straight to checkout. It's done. Uh, it's convenience. But Especially um, on a mobile phone. I mean, the idea of actually shopping on a desktop seems so limiting now. Yeah. When you know, you can be two or three clicks to find yep. purchase and uh, have it delivered. Absolutely. And yet the, the weird thing is that uh, conversions on mobile devices are roughly half what they are on desktop. So really? in terms of, I guess, usability, user experience, refining uh, the process on mobile, we've still got a long way to go despite the fact that we are prolific users of uh, mobile phones and mobile usage has well and truly overtaken desktop, but the process of transacting uh, still lags behind. And I think that's a combination of things, but um, I think uh, user experience experts are now starting to realize that you know you can't just say mobile first, you've really got to think mobile first and how can I make this the process that people mm. use rather than the person who's going to approve the design on a desktop, for example. Yeah, and and that's the trouble. I start with that, and then they go, "Oh well, but it's responsive." And yeah. then you actually look at it on mobile yeah. and try and get your finger to click yeah. on the. Yeah, yeah it needs to be a, it needs to be a, a designed bespoke experience for mobile. And this is not just an opportunity for big companies. I mean, a lot of the examples we've used are, are incredibly big corporations yep. that are doing. Uh, Online transacting or e-commerce, because yeah. Um, yeah, you know Trinity P three, I think uh, I shared with you is uh, we have our own cart, and and the reason we did that is that apart from the consulting business, which we wouldn't at this stage think about that, there were lots of small things that we offer that have mm-hmm. small transactions, and it was just easier to offer those to be able to, through an e-commerce platform. Absolutely, and it makes sense for a lot of products, especially your products, the products you mentioned to me, where people just need to buy uh, services or s- simple products, etc. Buy guess, our book. Buy, buy your book. Download yes, a, yes. A, a piece yeah, of for example. PDF. Or, <laughs> yeah. you know, don't forget the book. <laughs> <laughs> or even um, you know, uh, a simple consult, you know, quite simple yeah. consulting meetings. I mean, the great thing is e-commerce is accessible for everyone. It's been the the tools and the technology have been well and truly democratized. Um, you can be very sophisticated or you can be um, just simply put a toe in the water quite easily. So um, the tools that used to be available to the really big guys, um, you know, for example, a site that once cost $250,000 to build, you can probably build now for um, less than a tenth of that. So 
um, I guess that throws up some interesting kind of questions around um, the explosion of e-commerce. It means that all of these smaller guys are chipping away at the bigger guys. Um, you don't have to be amazing, but if you're a little bit good, uh, then you're having an impact on the big guys who have been the established players. So. Um, it's interesting what you said there because, you know, we hear from a lot of big clients that, you know, oh, it's the IBM platform or it's the Adobe platform. You know, mm -hmm. There's these big platforms, big investments. And yep. yet, you know, there are now lots of very low cost ways that small players can get involved. It's I true. mean, uh, WordPress yep. has lots of plug plugins for e-commerce yep. um, you know, and other space. platforms yep. too. Yeah, and it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. Uh, if you want something very bespoke, very custom, um, very much about your brand and your experience, it costs a lot more. Uh, if you're having integrations with uh, sophisticated warehouse systems, um, inventory management systems, accounting systems, ERP systems, etc., the price obviously goes up because it takes time to integrate into these systems. But um, yeah, if, if you want to put a toe in the water, it's, uh, it's pretty quick to get going these days. Even even getting towards the sort of you know medium level sites, you can do something fairly sophisticated quite quickly. Projects that used to take um, say uh, twelve months to complete now take three months to complete, and we're going to see more of that. So I guess what that means in terms of the t the types of sites that are now um, proliferating, uh, we're now finding there are niches within niches. So uh, yeah. Well, what's that mean? What type of niches within niches? So I guess at one end of the spectrum, you've got the Amazons yep. and the Ebays, which are marketplaces. Um, then the other end of the spectrum, you might have someone offering a single product. So for example, um, we did some work with a um, very clever couple who designed their own deodorant pro product. It was a natural deodorant product. One product. Mm. And they're selling millions of dollars worth of one product. So they found a little niche, found that people wanted a particular deodorant product that was natural, didn't com contain all the kind of nasty stuff, found a way to resonate with, with their audience and uh, doing incredibly well. Similarly, we have another client who um, has manufactured a, I guess, a disposable um, um, sanitary product and has found an audience. It's a subscription model, also doing incredibly well. So these very kind of interesting little sort of slivers of um, I guess of, of retail uh, being very specialized, very sort of driven by storytelling, um, low barriers to entry to get into the game. It's, it's really interesting though, those examples because you know I say uh, Trinity P3 is a micro multinational. In <laughs> some ways those two examples are global boutiques because yeah. they're a boutique offering, mm -hmm. but they get global reach Absolutely. because e-commerce, online transacting, is a global business. Exactly, exactly. And uh, the possibility for global reach with a small business is very real and very much there. It's, it's, it's possible. And then when you throw into the mix, I guess, some of the marketing tools that are available to augment that e-commerce experience, whether it's... Um, whether it's chatbots, um, loyalty programs, uh, reviews modules, um, uh, you name it. There's all these great tools. Um, there's, there's some great kind of marketing automation tools that can make it possible for a two-person operation to seem like they've got a 10-person operation because the tools are doing the heavy lifting. Uh, it's, it's really possible. It's interesting because traditionally we talk about social platforms like the Facebooks and the mm -hmm. Instagrams as creating communities. But in actual fact, when you think about it, e-commerce 
has a opportunity of creating communities of people through things like reviews and, and the mm-hmm. like. And it even has a stronger core to that because it's about people putting their money where their mouth is, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And I think if a brand can find a way to resonate, resonate and connect, it becomes pretty powerful. And then you have these evangelists who talk about the business and you get that magic thing in marketing called word of mouth. Mm. And there's nothing more powerful than that. And so there are a lot of very small brands doing a great job at storytelling, resonating, building communities around their products, um, building evangelism, I guess, and uh, becoming, you know, underground worldwide successes. So what do you think is the biggest obstacle for people, for businesses, getting into actually building an an e-commerce or online transaction presence? I think the biggest obstacle... um, if it's not the biggest obstacle it probably should be, um, is really finding that product market fit. You know, uh, it's easy to come up with, you know, your own kind of custom candle or something like that, but there are a gazillion of those out there. It's really trying to find a product that resonates with uh, an audience. And yeah, there's a lot of people having a crack and um, because the barriers to entry are quite low, but uh, really trying to sort of find a product that truly resonates with an audience. Um, I think that is or should be the biggest obstacle to success. And how do you do that? Um, there are, in fact, where I live in Byron Bay, uh, there are a couple of, well, a few world-class uh, fashion brands. And people always say, how did these guys become so massive? I mean, they're really, really big here in the States. And they started out, their, their, I guess, their process of product market fit by going to the markets, testing these products at the markets. Mm. That resonated with people. Then they decided to move online, and I guess the in the I guess in the uh, internet world, you can do those kind of tests um, using, say, social media and using kind of some very basic sort of paid media tests just to see whether 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 or not your product resonates. So, um, mind you, Byron Bay is as a test market is a little bit unusual because you've got the Hemsworths and the Jackmans <laughs> and the you know it, it has got quite a international uh, flavor especially that connection from Byron Bay to Los Angeles or Hollywood it's really interesting it's uh, become a bit of a uh, celebrity hub of late what used to be a you know a bit of a sort of hippie bohemian enclave has now become um, a hippie bohemian celebrity enclave yeah and uh, yeah it's interesting it really is and you know, there's a lot of celebrity spotting going on these days. But I think, uh, irrespective, it's still, you're right, a core thing, which is build your customer base. Yep. And really, one of the things you said very early on is that all of this technology is purely there to reduce friction points. Yep. You know, that if people want, you know, you build a desire for the product, then the real role of e-commerce or or a online store is to just make it easier for people to access the thing that they want. That's right. And I think to achieve those things, you still need a good product, a good strategy and good execution. And there are still a few moving parts there. If suddenly you find that you have a market, uh, you still have to find ways to um, get your product onto someone's doorstep. And uh, it's all the tiny little moving parts you have to do exceptionally well because as we know, a great brand experience doesn't end when you put your credit card through the uh, cash register. It's when you're at home unwrapping the present or the the gift, etc. That's the kind of wow moment. And uh, it's the same with e-commerce. You know, how do you keep that story going? How do you get someone uh, 
advocating that product and so on. I'm, I'm so glad you said that because uh, a friend shared on LinkedIn how it's driving them crazy the number of surveys they get asked to fill out every time they do anything online. You know, you go and you purchase something, but before you've even got the product or gone to the concert or gone on the aeroplane, yeah. they're asking, how was that experience? I just bought something. You know, it's not like I've actually got the benefit of the experience. That's right. And if that product doesn't arrive when you expect it to, consumers are pretty unforgiving. If you get a call from customer service saying that product that you've uh, ordered is actually now on back order, it might be a delay of one or two weeks, uh, people don't like that very much. And that completely undoes all the great kind of work you've done as a marketer all the way down the marketing funnel, just from that little logistics unraveling. So from what you said before about you know the right product and, the, uh, and understanding your customer and mm -hmm. you know, it really is a marketing function in the true sense of the word the idea of e-commerce or uh, being an IT function or an operations function they're certainly part of the fulfillment mm -hmm. but the actual strategy is a market one well in terms of uh, I guess brand being the sum total experience that a customer has absolutely it is mm. you know being able to deliver a an end-to-end beautiful wonderful delightful experience is a is definitely a marketing function and there are there are very few brands that get that right now um i've just noticed the time uh, we're running out of time uh is uh, 30 acres uh the type of agency where you're busy doing great work for your uh, clients that you don't have time to do it for yourself do you have your own e-commerce uh, function I was hoping you'd ask that question. <laughs> we're kind of like the, uh, I guess the, you know, the plumber with a leaky tap at home. We're very busy working on other people's. Uh, or the cobbler, yeah, the old-fashioned yeah. cobbler's shoes, or the uh, busman's holiday. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. We're um, having said that though, we do have um, a couple of instances where we, um, I guess, have some skin in the game with a couple of clients, and that uh, is a way for us to kind of really walk the walk and make sure that we're thinking that extra mile beyond just. I guess being a service-based business, thinking about being in the in the shoes of a merchant because we have a little slice of that business. So, um, in terms of having Thirty Acres having its own pure play um, uh, internet retailing site, we actually don't have one. Uh, having said that, though, there are some plans in the works. So watch this space. Okay. Well, I heard a great story in Shanghai where uh, an agency was asked to pitch for a coffee brand. We won't name which one. And they said, look, we know nothing about the you know, coffee cafe business, but we've got some retail space downstairs. We're going to open a cafe and give us uh, two months and we'll come back and let you know if we happy to pitch for your business wow anyway uh two months three months later the client phoned up and said we, we haven't heard back from you and they said <laughs> we're making more money out of the cafe than we'd make uh, doing advertising so thanks for the opportunity but no thanks <laughs> <laughs> we're good thanks <laughs> who, who knows you know you could be 30 acres could be opening your own online uh, retail mm. and uh, suddenly you'll be saying to clients look 
we haven't got time to help you with your uh, e-commerce issues. We're too busy making money with our own. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, look, thanks for uh, thanks for popping by, coming it's been in, a pleasure. Um, coming down from Byron Bay. I'm very jealous. It's a beautiful oh, part you'll of the have world. To come up. There's always a, uh, a desk for you there to pull up. And, uh, <laughs> I can yeah. hot desk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one last question before we go. Uh, who do you think is going to knock off Amazon in the future?